Hi, I'm Jeremiah. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And, and this, this is, is Under, Under the, the Covers. Covers. Welcome back. It's good to have you guys back again. Uh, it has been a really busy time of year. Uh, spring is, is coming. Uh, it was 70 degrees in Boston last weekend, and it is currently 24. So, And it is March 3rd, so we are <laughs> in the depth of the weird New England confusing weather situation that right. always comes up this time of year. Yeah, and Stephanie and I are also in the middle of some projects that we're working on and presentations. And uh, uh, you and I have also taken some trips in the last couple of we weeks. Have. We wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the, the conferences. Nothing fancy, unfortunately. Well... Although, from what you were telling me about your trip, I know you're going to talk about it in a bit, but it sounded like a lot of fun, but there weren't like any beaches involved or or anything like that. No, we've been on um, educational trips, if you will. Jeremiah and I each attended different events in the last couple of weeks we're going to talk about today, and I guess let's launch right into what our topic is. Absolutely. That'll be a nice platform for sharing with folks what we've been up to. I'll talk more about it later, but I recently attended what's called the Fetish Fair Flea Market, which was hosted by the New England Leather Alliance, which is basically a weekend-long event that's about kink and sex and relationships, and it was really, really interesting. There were lots of workshops and talks and there were vendors selling different kinds of things, and it was really cool. And Jeremiah, do you want to talk a little bit about the conference that you yeah, attended? Yeah, I was in Philadelphia last weekend, and I uh, was at a conference hosted by the Incarnational Institute of Sex and Faith. And so we'll get into what that organization is. It's a new organization. Check them out, iisf.org. I think it's interesting presenting here in, in our podcast about what these two events that we attended were. and sharing with folks that we're going to sort of talk about these two topics together. I think... The blasphemy, people, Stephanie. Most people probably wouldn't think of like a conference about sex and faith and an event about kink being paired together as one topic for one of our episodes, but that's exactly what we intend to do. This is what you have to look forward to today, so stick around. Our song that we're going to do today will be a little bit later in the episode, probably around minute 20, 22 by the time this thing's edited, so just note that as well. We talk on Under the Covers a lot about stories and organization and other types of education that have formed our sexuality. I've made some references before on this podcast that my sexuality is largely formed by some of the narratives of the evangelical culture that I grew up in. So by evangelical culture, I mean the community. Uh, My community happened to be in in the South, in Texas, in which a specific type of faith is the organizing principle. So this specific type of faith is very into overt practicing of spiritual disciplines, of prayer, of evangelizing, thus evangelism. What does evangelizing actually mean? I don't think I know what that word means. So evangelizing comes from the idea of I'm going to tell you about my faith. I'm going to sit down with you and I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Oh, like spreading the good word? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And thinking about ways of communicating that to folks, arguing different Christian points, uh, Mm. different Christian themes. And as we'll talk about in a bit, and as I'm sure that you don't need us to describe, there's been a larger culture that's bled into schools in Texas. It's bled into football games Mm. and it's bled into uh, government policy. I would argue that we have a political party in the U.S. that is deeply entrenched in evangelical culture. Um, Don't necessarily want to get too deeply into that, but I think that you can make some uh, insinuations as to what I'm talking about. Yeah, I always find it interesting when we talk about the topic of religion and particularly incorporating ideas about sexuality because I myself, as you know, was raised Catholic, and Mm -hmm. so I have a lot of the sort of Christian ideals in the back of my mind in terms of my own experience and exposure. But as I've said to you, Jeremiah, I'm not sure if I've said on this podcast, my family values growing up were always pretty liberal. My mom in particular focused very much on the values of acceptance and empathy Mm -hmm. and, you know, kindness and compassion for others. And so I actually think that my family value system served somewhat as a sort of a protective barrier against some of the more rigid sex negative kind of messaging that was present in the religious ideology that I was raised with. I find it really interesting to like look at what both of our experiences have been and how they have played out over our lives. There's a very clear sense of values in evangelical culture as, as well. 
uh, values of loyalty, values of obedience, that we're going to follow authority. We listen to those that are in charge. Family togetherness and connectedness and bonding is something that's really important in evangelical culture as well. As we're talking, I want to be careful to be really specific about not attacking evangelicals at large. Mm. The next few minutes is a critique of the messaging that evangelical cultures share around sexuality and around how we use our bodies. When you think of the recipients of sex negativity, you often think that women are kind of the primary receivers of this slut-shaming, promiscuous, you know, women get the brunt of a lot of the sex negativity. But as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, wait a minute, men get this too. Uh, There was an organization that started when I was in elementary school called Promise Keepers. Mm. Have you heard of Promise Keepers? No, I have not heard of Promise Keepers. (laughs) Promise Keepers is an organization that originally started for Christian men that uses both dyadic accountability groups and large arena-filled conferences to support a man's spiritual journey. I hear, by the way, that there's a Promise Keepers organization for women, but this is primarily a men's organization. It encourages men to maintain a leadership, and I'm putting that in quotes for those of you that can't see this, a leadership role in the family. So there's the traditional gender hierarchy that gets maintained. And then there are these core beliefs of Promise Keepers that we're going to be open and honest with each other. Uh, And one of them is, and I quote, a promise keeper is committed to practicing spiritual, moral, ethical, and sexual purity. It's interesting. We've been talking about this prior to even starting recording today, the concept of purity. And I raised the question of what is purity? (laughs) I mean, I don't, how do we define purity as something that is rather than defining it as a concept based on what it's not? I mean, it sounds like from what you've said, Uh, just now and some of our previous conversations that purity primarily seems to be defined as a resistance to sexual urges a resistance to your body absolutely Mm. a resistance to things that are resisting sin sure is purity sure Um, and and sin is sin is definitely a word that gets attached to the failure to achieve quote purity uh, which, well, geez, if I'm sinning because I masturbate or because I watch pornography, uh, not only am I participating in these activities and enjoying it and experiencing some sort of pleasure, there's a simultaneous experience of shame. Mm. What does God think of me? What is my, what is my partner going to think of me if he or she finds out that I'm participating in these activities? There's a ton of pressure, and promise keepers manage to as well as creating great relationships between men, also make an organizing principle of the relationships that confession, not for the sake of growth, but confession in a way that often is just kind of throwing shame back and forth to each other. Mm. This is one of the challenges that my generation, particularly those who grew up in the church in the 90s and 2000s, struggled with. On the one hand, you have this evangelical culture movement uh, that is promoting this anxiety-based language around sexuality. And then on the other hand, you have this feminist movement in the 90s, more so in the 90s than in the 2000s, that is anti-porn. So the feminist movement during this time was, we use the, the term porn wars, really I think what was happening was there was this battle within the feminist community around sex positivity and whether or not sexual freedom, such as the freedom to choose to watch pornography or perform in pornography, an issue of women's empowerment and freedom, or does that represent women sort of giving into the patriarchy and what men want and expect for women? And this battle between feminists who sort of took either position Mm -hmm. was, and I think in some circles still is, something that people really kind of get passionate about. And maybe we can talk about that more explicitly on another uh, podcast episode when we talk about pornography. So while that's going on, uh, in evangelical circles, there's purity culture. So purity rings, which wearing that meant that we're saving sex for marriage, depending on what sex means. Usually that means penetrative sex, but you know, how do you define sex? Yeah. Uh, then there's a lot of anxiety that, that and shame that develops around that and answering yeah. that question. You introduced me, Jeremiah, to the book 
I kissed dating goodbye. And I apologize for anyone who just cringed after Stephanie just said that name. Oh my God. You hadn't heard of that book. I hadn't. It was not popular within my circles. I'm telling you, my experience of religion and my culture and my community was was a lot different. It was enormously popular in evangelical youth groups, including the one that I uh, grew up at. It's a book by a guy named Josh Harris. Josh Harris is actually 22 when he writes this book. So, oh, yeah, I read that. So keep online. that in mind. Harris talks about remaining pure, pure, until marriage. Yeah, back to that word. Virginity, non-promiscuous, again with the don'ts. Mm-hmm. Using vivid imagery to describe how adolescent and young adult sexual activity affects the way that God sees you. Yeah. And here's the shaming message again. For instance, there's this image he paints of men and women bringing all of their past partners with them to the altar of their wedding day. Uh, suggesting that sex before marriage took pieces of your heart, making you less whole. Oh my God, that, I just have such a strong reaction to that. Finding differentiation for a lot of folks, myself included, who grew up with this type of language, is really, really challenging. It seems really counter to the idea of the abundance model that we talked about mm-hmm. in our episode about open relationships. Definitely. This idea where as we grow and move forward in our lives, we have relationships with different people, maybe romantic, maybe not, just relationships in general. And none of the relationships that we have with anyone take away from the relationships that we have with anyone else. Dating people as a way of carving out parts of yourself that are then gone forever and detract and harm any future marriage that you could have. I mean, the reaction that I have is one of, of, really deep sorrow i mean that Mm. is a painful message to receive and to listen yeah thank you i think that sounds um, really painful yeah there are other things that josh harris talks about all around the idea of repressing sexual urges not just sex one of the things that struck me when i was learning a little bit about this book was his idea that even dating Uh it sounded like he was advocating for what he called a courtship process as opposed to dating which is a series of group dates dating as a community as opposed Mm -hmm. to dating in a one-on-one type of environment right and the idea of parents as guides in this process yeah my eyes just got really huge for i wish you guys could have seen the we're, we're going to Facebook Live. <laughs> we're going to Facebook Live one of these things. But anyway, I think that really struck me as a, a message that carries a lot of potential for pain. There was an article that you shared with me on Slate about this book, this I Kiss Dating Goodbye book, and the idea that Joshua Harris now is beginning to publicly question some of the things that he wrote about, and he's collecting stories and anecdotes and comments folks who read this book and obeyed his directives in the book and these people are are coming forward and talking about all the ways that this hurt their marriages and their affected their sense of shame and all these things i was wondering if i could read one of the one of the letters actually it's on a website called life after i kiss dating goodbye and there's a series of four or five different websites that provide a voice for those who struggled through the messages of evangelical culture and are trying to figure out what sexuality looks like for them today. And I wanted to read, uh, this is from a polyqueer woman uh, on the website, and this is a section of this. I wanted so desperately to be loved, so I threw myself in all the rules and suppressing my sexual urges. I even stopped masturbating for nine months. Unfortunately, my sex drive is a powerful thing, And I finally broke down and had, quote, penis and vagina, unquote, sex, for the first time with a guy I'd been dating for a month. I didn't love him. I didn't even like him all that much. I just wanted to have sex. Afterwards, I wanted to kill myself. All those phrases drilled into my head from a young age haunted me. You're dirty. You're impure. No man will want you now. You're damaged. You're a slut. Purity culture isn't just some cutesy romantic ideal that protects you from pain. It's misogyny cloaked in religious language programmed to make women hate themselves and hate one of the main things that makes them who they are, their sexuality. Wow. That's pretty powerful. Yeah. This weekend, then, I went to this conference in Philly uh, called the Incarnation Institute of Sex and Faith. 
and my own healing process is ongoing, but I recently found this awesome group of other folks who are trying to insert positive sexuality within their theology. Uh, Reverend Beverly Dale, uh, Dale, D-A-L-E, formerly connected with UPenn's campus ministry program, has developed a curriculum where she incorporates a pleasure-based model of sexuality into theological teachings. A Ch- curriculum for, so who is her um, audience? So her audience is for church members, for churchgoers. Okay. And uh, the idea that she has currently is educating churches about sex positivity. Uh, so both what pleasure is and theological backings for pleasure in a sexual context. And then a larger a theological shift from vengeful rule-based God into a God who encourages Christians to love one another as we would have ourselves be loved. So check out our YouTube channel for more information. Uh, she has a particular interesting conversation about kink and theology. And again, we'll work back to that in this episode. Yeah. She's seeking to connect theologians with sexologists, folks like you and I, who study and practice sex therapy, so that we can include these types of languages of sex positivity, not just into our churches, but also into our larger institutions, uh, our schools, our policies, our government policies, so that we can heal ourselves from language of purity and shame. Uh, And I can fill up an hour of this conversation, and I'm aware that I'm already at about minute 20 right now. Uh, but I wanted to just kind of talk about three basic things that we talked about, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talked about how Christianity has been co-opted through the years by this rigid sexual message. Early Christian writers, including but not limited to the Apostle Paul, were influenced significantly by Plato. Hmm. One of Plato's ideas was that of dualism, where our mind and body are separate things. Our souls are imprisoned in our bodies. This is Platonic thought. And while Plato doesn't necessarily make it clear how our souls are imprisoned in our bodies, future writers, most famously Thomas Aquinas, suggest that it's the physical and sexual failings of our bodies. Bodies are bad. Souls, and Western culture gets conflated with minds, are good. Throughout the weekend, Rev Bev is her... uh, stage name, I suppose, Revbed would say, that's not Jesus, that's Plato. That's really interesting. And I think I said this in a previous conversation that we had, Jeremiah, that it amazes me how long these ideas have been around. Like how many years these ideas have been circulating and have maintained power over us. Right. And this is the second thing that we talked about is the ways that these ideas maintain power over us. The organizational structures use authoritarian language in order to keep itself in power, in order to keep the organization in power. And the organization in this case, for thousands of years, being primarily white, educated European men. The church, then, has always been a patriarchal structure, meaning that men have had the power to set edicts. And these edicts are much more likely to affect women's sexuality and ability to choose. If you want to get super geeky, read more about the Council of Elvira. Um, Elvira, E-L-V-I-R-A. A meeting in the 300s. So yes, this has been going on for a really long time. Oh my God. It seems to be the turning point in church history towards sex negativity. In the early church, it's thought that same-sex relationships were allowed. But in 300, uh, with the Council of Elvira, this is the first documentation that we have that sets up really clear sexual edicts, promoting heterosexism, promoting specific gender roles uh, within the uh, sexual relationships that a heterosexual couple has. So, wow, I never even heard of the Council of Elvira. I hadn't either until this week, but we distinguish between obedience, a following of the rules driven by fear of consequences, and discernment. Uh, let me use a less churchy word. Critical thought, which allows us to use multiple perspectives, including our experience, family messages, friends, and science to fully inform the decisions that we make. Discernment, then, is a process of curiosity, while obedience is a maintenance of the status quo. Mm. So we're advocating for discernment over obedience? Yes. And then the third thing is the answer to the question, so what happens if you throw out the rules? Mm. Sex negativity comes from a very low view of human nature. The rules maintain a sense of order. 
So if we throw out the rules, combined with this low view of human nature, given to our own devices, we're bound to choose the worst possible options. If you don't follow the rules, we're assuming that you're having wild orgies and sexual acts that aren't really agreed upon. Anxiety gets us and creates these worst case scenarios. And also remembering that sex negativity uh, supports capitalism as well. That there are organizations that find their funding around the problems of sexuality. Mm. Everything from the medical pills, Viagra and Cialis, to, to organizations that provide work for sex addiction. Sex addiction, by the way, which we know from science, we don't have enough information to know whether or not that exists. And actually, most sex therapists argue now that sex addiction is not actually an addiction process. Right. Um, but that it's that compulsive or out of control sexual behavior is something else that yeah. doesn't operate in the same way that addiction operates. So we transition then into a new sexual ethic centered not so much around obedience, but more about justice. Where we are including interactions that involve consent. Both people are on board. Mm-hmm. Mutuality. There's a give and take. Both people have equal say in the conversation. Mm-hmm and authenticity. I wanted to pause here for a minute because I also want to hear about your conference and where you um, went in in Rhode Island. I think that this is a good pausing point though to do our song for the week. Great. I think you guys will find this one familiar. It was very popular on the radio not too long ago. Enjoy our cover of Take Me to Church by Hosier. Enjoy. My lover's got humor She's the giggle at a funeral Knows everybody's disapproval I should have worshipped her sooner If the heavens ever did speak She's the last true mouthpiece Every Sunday's getting more bleak A fresh poison each week We were born sick You heard him say it my church offers no absolute She tells me worship in the bedroom The only heaven I'll be sent to Is when I'm alone with you I was born sick, but I love it Command me to be well Amen 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 church i'll worship like a dog at the shrine of your lives i'll tell you my sins and you can sharpen your knife offer me that deathless death oh good god let me give you my life take me to church i'll worship like a dog at the shrine of your lives i'll tell you my sins so you can sharpen your knife offer me Then 
church I'll worship like a dog at the shine of your lights I'll tell you my sins where you can sharpen your knife Offer me that deathless death Oh good God, let me give you my life So I love this song this is something that Stephanie, I know you've been wanting to do for quite a few months since we conceptualized this podcast. Yeah, one of the first things we did when we started planning for the podcast was we sat down and we thought about a list of things that we wanted to talk about and also right. songs that we might be interested in. And this song was one of the first ones on my list. I've been wanting to cover it for months and I am so glad that we finally did. Yeah. And I think it, it could not be a better fit for this topic. So first things first, I didn't realize that Hosier was Irish. Really? Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Have he you has... ever watched, I've watched a lot of interviews with oh, Hosier okay. because I just like to watch Hosier. <laughs> He's a very attractive man. He is very attractive. And he plays man. guitar. He has this <laughs> He has this really what are, we, what are we trying to say with the he plays guitar comment? I'm just kidding. Okay. Oh, oh, burn. He has, <laughs> He has this really cool southern rock gospel like kind of sound. Uh, Take Me to Church was Hosier's first single. Ended up being the headliner on one of my favorite albums, his 2015 self-titled album, Hosier. Oh, it was so good. It was nominated for Song of the Year at the 2015 Grammys, so not long ago, it was only about a year and a half ago that the song came out. Yeah, I think this is, that this song does a really interesting job drawing some connections between Jeremiah, some of the ideas you've been talking about as far as church and religion and sex negativity and things like that. And, yeah. And positive sexuality. So, growing up in Ireland, Hozier's experience was significantly affected by the Catholic Church, mm. even though Hozier grew up Protestant. There's a Rolling Stone interview with Hozier a few years ago, and he talked about his frustration with the church's position on LGBT folks and the sex abuse scandals, which aren't just happening in Catholic churches in the Boston area, by the way, but in different pockets throughout the world. Uh, have you seen the music video for this? Yeah, I have. What did you think of it? Really powerful. If you if, if you're you listening to this and you haven't seen it before, I recommend taking a pause and going to YouTube and watching it. It's a lot though. If you're in a place of emotional struggle, it's kind of heavy. Yeah, definitely. You've got the story of a gay couple, one of whom gets assaulted by a group of hooded men. Uh, you have these symbols of abuse throughout the song. Uh, the video shot in black and white. Uh, there are right extremist protests and hoods and gang bandanas constant references to things that are burning there's this phrase in the song i was born sick you heard them say it uh, and that's a reference to the church's position about lgbt folks right. he speaks to the hypocrisy of the rule-based expectations of obedience i'll tell you my sins and you can sharpen your knife mm. if i tell you about this you're going to criticize me even with language like hate the sin love the sinner mm -hmm. and then in the bridge no masters or kings when the ritual begins. There is no sweeter innocence than our gentle sin. I'm going to have these sexual relationships on my terms, even if the church speaks out against it. Only then am I human. Only then am I queen. Amen. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful song. I don't know that Hosier talks about the song this way, or I'm not quite sure if this was an intention but I also mm. think that the interesting way to interpret some of this song is around themes of kink and relationships in which the partners are playing a bit with power mm -hmm. in their sexuality there are a lot of thematic messages I guess in the song around like giving yourself over to another person yeah and the what are some of the, the lines you think and the connection in that yeah, I mean, some of the lyrics that I hear this showing up in, this idea of worship, I mean, mm -hmm. it's a religious idea, but there's also an inherent power in the concept of worshiping someone. And right. so if you are engaging in an act of worshiping a partner, mm -hmm. um, there's a, like a sort of dominance and submission theme. And I think that the messages around being sick or sinful apply to the kink community as well. The idea that these sexual practices are dirty or other or are sort of extreme in some unclean, in not okay, inappropriate kind of way. But then actually, if the singer of the song is someone who does engage in those practices and finds beauty and joy and spirituality in them, how that message goes directly against the idea that we're sick or we're sinning. I think the lyric, Offer Me That Deathless Death, Mm -hmm. is really an interesting one. It 
brings to mind for me the idea of something we've talked about before, not on the podcast, but the idea of getting out of your own head during a sexual experience and being completely sort of in your own body mm-hmm. or in your emotion, but outside of thought, letting go of anxiety, yeah. letting go of distraction and being completely present. And the idea of deathless death being almost like the escape that can happen right. during sexu- during certain sexual experiences where you kind of step outside of regular life and into a separate sort of headspace or a separate sort of way of being in your body, in yourself. I think that lyric is really interesting. I'm yeah. not sure what Hosier's intention was in that originally, but that's you know, one of the ways that I hear that. Well, Steph, I'm curious. You're using a few words that transition us then into part two of our conversation today. Kink, power, dominance, mm. submission. And I'm wondering if you could take a few minutes to talk a little bit about... What is kink? Yes. I love this topic. <laughs> I get, just really I get equally excited about this topic as I do about the open relationships topic. Okay. This is one of my jams. I love talking about this. So kink is a really difficult word to define. So let's speak about some of the cultural stuff that mm-hmm. maybe people draw on when they hear this word. Like, have you seen the new Fifty Shades of Grey movie? I haven't seen the first Fifty Shades of Grey movie, nor have I read the book. Okay. So I think that at this point in time, in 2017, most people who are not part of a kink community, if mm-hmm. you will, right, know about this through either pornography, depending on what the person's interests are, or Fifty Shades of Grey, which has become this big cultural phenomenon. Right. And so Fifty Shades of Grey, if you somehow manage to go through the world without being familiar with this yeah. story... It's actually originally fan fiction of Twilight, Twilight yep. which, you know, I'm not even going to get into that, I, but <laughs> yeah. speaks to the quality of work that we're talking about. Right. Here. It's, it's not well written. Not it's, that they're not fun stories. Sure. If absorbed with a little bit of a critical eye, but I, <laughs> I digress. So Fifty Shades of Grey is a story about a male-female couple in which the man is this dominant guy who's very emotionally cut off and inaccessible, but who works in a very powerful job and is just a powerful person in the world. He's very wealthy also. Mm -hmm. And he meets this young woman who, in her own life, does not have power in the same ways that he does. She's, I think, a student. I was about to say, isn't there an occupational power dynamic, too? Yep, there definitely is. There's a wealth power dynamic goes on. And actually, the story starts when she goes in to interview him for either a newspaper article or I think it's a school paper, a college paper. I mean, she's not a high school student. And so they sort of begin this courtship kind of relationship where he's pursuing her but he's pursuing her for a very specific kind of relationship Mm -hmm. um, which she is completely unfamiliar with at the start of the story and so what plays out is he tries to convince her to enter into this literal written contract in which she agrees to like submit to him so so she has nothing to do with the writing of this contract he this is a unilateral contract yeah by the male pre-created contract okay which he has used before i mean the idea okay like the idea in the story is that this is his lifestyle like this is how he does his relationships got it and she is intensely curious about this she does another i think important point when we're talking about this is that she has very little of her own sexual experience to draw from it's not only a new kind of sexuality but her entrance into her own sexuality and sexual life is through this sort of very unconventional man and way of doing things which may speak to its 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 appeal then Perhaps, uh, folks yeah. uh, connecting with what's the female protagonist's name? Anastasia, I think. Oh, really? Anastasia, oh. yeah, Anastasia she... Steele. Oh. And Christian Gray. And Christian Gray, very yes. sexy names. Um, but they don't have very sexy dialogue. <laughs> There's but... a lot of like my goddess and things like. Well, you know, some people are into that, so I'm not going to shame that. But anyway. I think that Fifty Shades of Grey is a narrative that is really appealing to a lot of people because, maybe because of its novelty, but I think more because it speaks to things that people are aroused by and interested in that are not part of popular romantic stories. So fantasy, accessing different types of sexual fantasies. Erotic fantasy, yeah. I mean, I think that 
we don't see a lot of this in the media, and especially people who don't like or don't choose to watch or engage with pornography. Yeah. Fifty Shades of Grey feels like it's not pornography. There is a romance in the story. It's very accessible to women in particular who've been socialized in this culture. It takes very erotic, very overtly sexual, lustful content and makes it accessible to the broad general public in a way that's easy, that's digestible, that feels acceptable. Mm -hmm. You know, people read Fifty Shades of Grey on the subway and no one bats an eye. It's not like you've got your, you know, you're watching porn on your phone with your headphones in and worrying about what the person next to you is going to think. But if you're reading a scene about bondage and it's from Fifty Shades of Grey, okay, well, everyone knows Fifty Shades of Grey, that's fine. Right. Right? So I think coming back to what is kink, kink is usually defined as unusual or unconventional sexual practices. I think that the Fifty Shades of Grey franchise and its enormous popularity in our culture demonstrates that maybe kink is not as unusual or unconventional as we're led to believe that sure. it is. That being said, I'm not really sure of what the definition How of to kink answer. is. I think we can look at the BDSM acronym as a maybe starting point, but did you want to take a stab at it? If you were to throw a idea out there about what is kink, how would you define kink? The, what yeah. Might, what might you say? You know, sexual actions that are outside of the accepted script mm-hmm. of what kind of normal sexual actions are. Right. Uh, so I, when I think of kink, I also think of vanilla sex. Uh, missionary sex, that type of thing. Thinking about um, kinky behaviors as kind of more intentional, more drawn-out ways of enacting sexual experiences. I I really like what you just said about the intentionality piece. And if we look at just pure sexual behavior, it becomes very confusing because, right, like, what is normal? You know, right. I mean, you, you might argue that sex in the doggy style position mm-hmm. is normal or is sort of oh yeah, everybody a does that place position for a couple to have sex in. Right? But you might also argue that a doggy style position is kinky. Right. I mean, but that but the, it's the it's the intention yeah. behind what's happening. The intentionality behind what's happening. Intention, intentionality. Potato, potato. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> is that two, is there it's two, two different things. Two different things? Yeah, because things? the intentionality means that the two of you are working out a negotiation, an agreement that this is going to happen. It's not just you're you're having sex and then suddenly you're doing it doggy style. You're having a communication, a conversation between the two of you mm. where there's a back and forth between partners where we talk about what we like. We talk about what we don't like and we make decisions what to include into our sexual interactions. As opposed to intention, which is one-sided. Right. Like, my intention was X. That's really interesting. I actually never thought about the difference between those two words, so thank you for bringing that up. But I will say that I don't think intentionality by itself is enough to make an encounter kinky. Just because two people are agreeing that we're going to have sex and we're going to do it in this particular way, does that define what kink is? Right. Anyway, so I think that this... Again, I really like the definition that you just gave, but I think it's equally vague to the one that I gave. Of course. And this is a really tough term to define. A way that we can maybe help people conceptualize, okay, kinky sex, what is it? Like, what are people who are having kinky sex actually doing? We can use the BDSM acronym, which I think a lot of people think of when they think of kink, if they are familiar with these terms. BDSM definitions are a little bit easier, I think. So do we know what this acronym stands for? Each of the letters, the D and the S, stand for multiple words. Right. Because D and S can stand for dominance and submission. Or, going in order, so BD, bondage, Bondage. discipline. So BDSM, D, dominance, submission. SM, sadism, and masochism. So I'm going to give some rough definitions here. Bondage having to do with physical restraints. So some people are really into playing with rope or being restrained in some way or being the person who's tying up a partner, something Mm -hmm. like that. Discipline, referring to like the process of punishment. Dominance and submission being a way that some folks play with like power and control, where the person in the dominant role has power or control over the person in the submissive role. And then sadism and masochism being 
similar to dominance and submission but around pain where someone is receiving a physical sensation that may blur the lines between pain and pleasure could be something as simple as spanking or there's lots of different sex toys that people might use to sort of like enhance this experience for them if this is what they're really into. So the masochist being the person who receives the pain and the sadist being the person who administers or inflicts the pain or the sensation. I think sensation is a better word. So are BDSM and kink then the same thing? I don't think so. Okay. But I have a hard time articulating what the difference is. Sure, fair (laughs) enough. When we're naming these specific categories in terms of BDSM and and what these letters all stand for and what these practices are and things like that. Obviously, there's overlap. Of course. You know, it's not like I'm a a dominant, but I'm also a sadist, but not at the same time. I don't know. Like, it's not really how we're... Like, I think it really, bringing back your point about intentionality, Mm -hmm. that has a lot to do with it. Again, I think spanking is really accessible. If that is a behavior that's taking place in a particular sexual interaction, right? If someone is spanking their partner, are they doing that because they're reminding their partner that they're the one in control of the interaction and mm-hmm. the power thing? Are they doing it because they know their partner likes the physical sensation of the getting spanked or because the person doing the spanking likes knowing that they're giving their partner that sensation? Is it because the partner receiving the spanking didn't follow a rule that the couple set for themselves? Naughty partner. And it's, are they getting in trouble? I mean, so these different reasons, I guess, that I'm describing for one action play on the different types of kinky behaviors that people choose to participate in, right? So I think really kink is about play. It's about sexual play. It's about sexual expression and how do we sort of engage in our sexuality in ways that are playful, that are creative, that maybe challenge the everyday norms. And challenge the way that we think of ourselves and 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 allow us to expand the way that we both view ourselves and also our partners through the play that we engage in. Yeah. A big theme here is communication, but I think we can circle back to that. That's the intentionality piece. Yeah. We're actually planning on doing... I don't know if we said this earlier. We haven't said this yet. Um, We're planning on doing a second episode about kink where we talk a little bit more about specific practices and how, if you're someone listening to this and you're thinking, hey, that sounds kind of interesting. I want to know more about that. I'd like to know more about the psychology behind that. I'd like to know a little bit more about how I can maybe think about bringing that into my relationship Mm -hmm. we're going to talk about that next time so that's why you see part one in the episode title on itunes that's right but i think one of the big picture things that we want to bring up today is the phrase safe sane and consensual Mm -hmm. definitely which is a phrase used by people who practice kinky sex or kinky behaviors or kinky relationships that these terms define what makes these relationships really ethical and okay and positive. And just and, and fair and exactly. mutual. Exactly. So do you want to take a minute maybe to, to look at each of these three words together? Definitely. Uh, so when we're talking about safe, it might seem that the lines get a little bit blurred, particularly when we're talking about pain. And I think that that's one of the areas of play is that we're inviting ourselves to blur the lines. But one of the things about safety is that if the line does get completely blurred, that there's a way that we're communicating that. Now, this is the idea of safe words, of uh, finding some sort of random nonsensical word. If you feel like you're experiencing too much pain so that it's not pleasurable anymore, dropping watermelon or hippopotamus <laughs> or whatever the safe word is and then that then, then there's green. an agreement that <laughs> what did you say it's a red yellow green <laughs> traffic light right and then there's this agreement uh, that we stop at that point that's right that could be one way that safety is practiced yeah. in a kinky situation i think safety is a subjective experience and the idea is that the partners engaging in the behavior or in the scene or whatever it is feel that they are safe if their sense of safety is threatened Mm -hmm. that they know that they have a process for restoring their sense of safety definitely and that the people that they are engaging in this kind of play with are going to also be respecting that which loops into consensual i mean we've talked about consent before on the podcast consent means that everyone 
involved in a sexual experience is there willingly right. and they're able to consent because they have all the information that they need in order to make their decision. They're agreeing to what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually when partners are negotiating out what kind of kinky activity they're going to be doing, there is a lot more communication because things like power are being played with. Things like the experience of pain are being played with. So partners really need to have a a clear conversation around what are your limits? What are your boundaries Mm -hmm. with this? I need to know this before we go into this experience because once we're in that mindset, not that we can't stop at any time and pause and do what we need to do, but but it's better to have that communication beforehand. We've talked about safe. We've talked about consensual. Talk about sane for a minute. Yeah, sane refers to the idea that you are in a mental space where you're able to appropriately have these kinds of conversations so you're not under the influence of alcohol or drugs, for Mm -hmm. example. Sane also refers to the idea that if you're struggling with a mental health disorder, for example, and you're experiencing psychosis, you maybe can't give consent appropriately at that time. Things like that are what sane... I I think the word sane is a little bit... It's not my favorite word because the opposite of sane is insane. Right. And that is really apologizing and harsh and kind of critical, and I I don't love that. But, I mean, safe, sane, consensual has a very nice ring to it. The alliteration of safe and sane works. (laughs) And I think sane... I mean, it's a word that does get the message across. How do you know that a behavior is going to be ethical and that it's going to work and be okay? Do you feel safe? Does your partner feel safe? Mm -hmm. Have you both agreed to what you're going to be doing? Mm -hmm. And are you in a mental space and a physical space where you're actually able Able to to agree? You're not being coerced. That's another big piece of this. And I just want to throw in one more idea before we wrap for today, which kind of comes up in response to this conversation we're having about the importance of being sane when you're negotiating a kinky experience. And this also ties back into what we were saying about Fifty Shades of Grey. There is a common misconception in the media about kink, and we see that in the character of Christian Grey from Fifty Shades of Grey. Christian Mm -hmm. Grey is a man who, it's revealed, spoiler alert, has a big abuse history in his own life, and that is sort of portrayed as the reason that he has this kinky lifestyle. And there's another movie called Secretary that we've talked about. It came yeah. out in um, the early, two, I think, 2004, starring uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal and James Spader. And this is another movie about basically a relationship that is kinky. It's a dominance and submission kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. And both characters in this film are struggling with mental health difficulties. Yeah. The female character has been cutting and has been struggling with depression and it's a little bit less clear what the what James Spader's character's specific struggles are, but yeah. he's clearly struggling. There's something beautiful in Secretary where, they, where they're talking about their kink as something that's a point of connection and coping and healing, mm-hmm. which I think it definitely can be. Definitely, yeah. But the overall message between these two movies and other media sources is that kink is connected to or caused by some kind of mental health problem. Or some sort of trauma. Or some sort of trauma, which is not true at all. Yeah. It can be very powerful and healing. Right. It can be a spiritual experience for people, and maybe that leads us to our wrap-up here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is not something that's caused by problems yeah. that we have. It's a perfectly healthy way of expressing sexuality. We'll talk more about some of the reasons people are interested in kink, you know, and some theories about that in our next episode. And also uh, how one might start practicing kink in, a, in an ethical uh, kind of way. The way that you're describing kink actually gives us a new way of looking at how sex is organized then. Mm-hmm. How in religion, sex is organized by this kind of larger other, this, uh, I guess, patriarchy, if you will, that comes with, that comes with fear, that comes with shame, that comes with anxiety, particularly if you don't meet these particular processes. Sex, or standards, sure. Sex in religious cultures often comes with the word no attached to it. Whereas in a kinky situation, you still have a really similar process 
where two partners are drawing out what specifically they want to happen. And they're clear. What are the rules? Exactly. They're clear with each other about how to maintain safety during that, how to respect each other, how to be authentic with each other, and to practice a sense of mutuality so that both partners are getting something out of it. The movement from sex negativity, centered around the rules of don't, into something resembling kink or sex positivity is actually a pretty natural one, particularly if we're wanting to use sex not just to explore pleasure, but also to be respectful towards each other and to love each other. That kink, that BDSM, that folks that practice those can do a lot to teach us about what uh, respect and consensuality and mutuality look like. And again, we'll explore more of this next time. Yeah, stay tuned. We'll be talking next time about, as we've been saying, kinky behaviors and some of the psychology behind them and some of the ways that if you're interested in trying them out, you might think about getting started. And if if you're interested in including... Uh, kink in your relationship or and or are interested in moving away from some of the religious standards uh, that have uh, weighed down that have burdened uh, both your relationship and or your own individual sexuality give us a call reach out to us we'd love to help you work through some of these issues 617-750-0183 or check us out online www.ssfamilyhc.com Thanks for listening. Have a good day. Under the Covers is a production of Jeremiah Gibson and Stephanie Wallace, couples therapists at South Shore Family Health Collaborative in Quincy, Massachusetts, the premier location for relationship therapy in the greater Boston and South Shore areas. For more information about Jeremiah and Stephanie, or to schedule an appointment, Check them out online at www.ssfamilyhc.com or call 617-750-0183. This podcast can be found on iTunes and Stitcher by searching under the covers, the music of relationships.